This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 920, a conversation with Ron Friends, The Right Project. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 920. It's our another conversation with Ron Friends. I think it's either the eighth or ninth time he's been on the show, and I'm always tremendously grateful when he's able to stop by the show. Uh, this time we're talking about specifically about uh, the Wright Project, which is his due project with Tom DeFalco and Sal Buscema, um, which is currently on Indiegogo, and the, the, it's, uh, I believe the campaign runs until uh, Thursday the 4th. Um, so there's still a little bit of time left to back the project and uh, also to grab some of the perks that are on there as well. Uh, it's a fun new project that they've been working on actually for a long time, as you'll learn in this interview. Um, it's not just something that kind of came out of nowhere. It's been actually uh, on the, you know, kind of finished in, in a drawer for a long time. Uh, something they're finally able to uh, kind of put out there into the world and uh, hopefully uh, people will respond to it. I'm really excited about it. I've, I'm a backer myself. I have also picked up some of the perks. Um, so I'm definitely very excited about uh, this new new project. I feel like you can't go wrong when you got Tom DeFaco and Ron Friends working on a project together, especially some of the create whole cloth themselves. You know it's going to be good. They also got Sal on, on on inks, so uh, I think there's a lot of exciting stuff to enjoy in this as it's coming up soon. Um, you can... Email me if you want to know more about this show. Email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Write the show on iTunes. Subscribe to us on iTunes and listen to us on Stitcher. Um, we're going to jump into the episode in just a second, but again, it's always a pleasure to have Ron on. Uh, you should definitely you know, back this project and uh, you know, support such great work. In this episode, we also talk a lot about uh, just uh, his working with Sal, you know, what it's like to work with Sal Buscema, um, who's, again, still active maybe a little less active as he kind of alludes to here as he's slowly kind of easing into retirement, but at what, 85, 86 years old, I guess that's permitted. But, um, you know, Sal Basama is, uh, is an interesting one. He mentions in this interview when I'm talking with Ron about, you know, it's, uh, some people kind of came to him later or didn't maybe understand or appreciate him enough when they were younger. And I think I kind of fall in the, under the same category. I think I liked his artwork when I would see it. Um, but I wasn't a huge fan of it till later. And I think part of that is, um, I never really, uh, and maybe this, you know, maybe people love this, but I never liked Bill Sinkovich's inks over Sal Buscema. I d- thought it did something to his artwork that I was felt maybe wasn't the best expression of who Sal was as a penciler. And then going back and, and seeing a lot more of Sal's work throughout the many, many decades, um, I've become such a huge fan of Sal and what Sal can do and how his acting works with his characters. Uh, he does some great acting and uh, just in terms of pure storytelling, he's tops. He's, you know, he's so good. Um, but you need, you need a good inker. And which is more interesting there is that, you know, in the more modern era, Sal has become more about inking. Um, you know, he's obviously inking over Ron a lot. Um, and he'll obviously do commissions where he's doing pencils too, but you know, he's a lot more about doing inks and it's just, it's an interesting 
kind of perspective is that he's such an amazing uh, penciler, but he's also a really accomplished inker too, and what he can do and what he can bring to a page as an embellisher. So anyways, um, I had a great time talking with Ron friends once again for the show. Um, and I, I, you know, go, go to the Indiegogo, try and fund this project, uh, try and get, you know, unlock the upper tiers, uh, for the stretch goals. I think it's well worth it. It's Ron Friends and Tom DeFalco. You cannot go wrong. Anyways, thanks for uh, listening to my preamble. Let's jump right into the conversation as I sit down with Ron Friends. Enjoy. Ron, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great, Adam, and thank you very much for having me on again. I really appreciate it. It's always a pleasure to have you on, and obviously you have something you know to, to promote. We want to make sure we get the word out, so I have a lot of questions, so it's uh, the, the right project is what you have coming up. I want to know, like, what was the genesis of this? Where was this coming from? Uh, it was coming from a place <laughs> of, of Tom DeFalco and myself having always worked with... Uh, with company-owned characters uh, in our careers from day one, and uh, finally giving some thought to what would we do, what would we create if we were left to our own devices to create anything we could. Um, and quite frankly, it it proved what it, what it ended up proving was why he and I were so happy with our careers up to that point, because <laughs> we really didn't go spiraling all that far from center, you know? Um, we knew we wanted to do an adventure character. You know, if you're talking your levels of superhero characters, you know, we knew we wanted to do uh, a character more in the Captain America vein or the Daredevil vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, not a cause, not necessarily cosmic, and not you know, and, and not certainly not grim and gritty. Um, and we started having longer conversations about you know how much we we both enjoyed the vibe of the uh, the early Simon Kirby adventure strips, like mm-hmm. Boys Ranch mm. and uh, an American Flag, and, and and some of those types of characters, stuntman, you know that. If, if people are aware of those characters or familiar with those characters. But, uh, you know, real straightforward ad- adventure-type strips like the Stan Lee, John Romita, Daredevil run, you know, things like that that appealed to both of us immensely. And uh, we also, you know, had a conversation that uh, a lot of people in media have been having about how much an audience can buy a square-jawed, smiling superhero anymore, <laughs> you know? Because as, as you can testify, as anybody in media can testify, until Chris Evans came along and pulled it off in Captain America, there were the you know, media didn't really think that that was possible anymore. Superman had to be, you know, they had to crack that nut and make Superman grim and gritty and, <laughs> and all this kind of stuff, and nobody really thought anybody could sell a square-jawed, smiling superhero. Um, so, I mean, that was a relief for a lot of us who love superheroes and love that type of superhero. And then, of course, you know, that, that I think in a way that kind of freed up the WB to hire Tyler Hecklin, the actor who's currently playing Superman on television, you know, mm-hmm. and actually do a more traditional take on Superman 
and let the movies worry about all the dark stuff, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so we, we, we were having a lot of general conversations about, you know, well, here we, we've been taking assignments and we've been creating stories and we've been, you know, delving into care, other people's characters for, for years. What, what do we want to do? What do we feel like we want to do? So that was the, that was the superhero aspect of it. But we also, we like to tell upbeat you know, uh, as Tom DeFalco puts it, hoo-ha action type stories. But we also <laughs> want to appeal to as broad as possible audience. So for me, that meant, you know, something a little more family-oriented. Uh, that I, I have no problem at all with um, a young uh, lead character. So we went with uh, young Jeffrey Lopez, <laughs> who hangs out with uh, the niece uh, named Carlin Click of a scientist named Dexter, Poindexter Click. <laughs> His name is Poindexter. He goes by Dex. Everybody calls him Dex. But uh, Poindexter Click, and he has created this new technology uh, that he has not, perf well, he hasn't perfected it yet. He's developing this new technology uh, whereby uh, he can give holographic figures mass by manipulating magnetic fields and if you give a holographic figure mass you're basically making it solid you're giving it a gravity center and making it solid so he is developing this technology for uh, first you know to, to possibly be used as avatars in first response or in highly dangerous job situations and things like that um and he hasn't quite licked it yet he can't get the uh the gravity center to hold for any real period of time but in the meantime this 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 young <laughs> prodigy uh jeffrey lopez hanging out with his niece uh, has been playing with the character and he's taken the avatar that the professor's been working with and he has redesigned him as a superhero character that he's been injecting into his video games. Uh, and what Wright stands for in the Wright Project and what Mr. Wright stands for, what, what are those things that when every letter stands for something? I, I couldn't think of it earlier. What, what, what is that term? Uh, acronyms? Acronym. Thank you very much. I was saying anagram, and I knew that wasn't it. <laughs> acronym. The acronym of Mr. Wright stands for, everybody, there'll be a test later, okay? <laughs> Multi-platform, real-time, reality-integrated, gravitic hologram technology. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. That, that's what it stands for. Uh, and, uh, and, and what happens in a moment of, of, uh, of, of dire need is that Jeff is able to activate the program and Mr. Wright becomes a, uh, a real-time reality hologram that can interact with the real world. He is solid as a rock. Now, what happens is that nobody really understands how he's able to do this. So, whereas Tom DeFalco and I could be accused of not knowing everything about gaming and everything about science and science fiction, <laughs> we do understand the imagination of a young man. And in the first issue, it's actually proposed that 
maybe, just maybe, it only works for Jeff because he believes. <laughs> and that's kind of the premise of the entire thing. Uh, the, the reason that the title is The Right Project is because since Mr. Wright himself is a digital avatar, the stories will, will, will revolve that much more around the sporting cast, around Professor Click and his niece Carlin mm. and Jeff Lopez and his mother, who is a policewoman and his uh, police detective, and his father, who is an investigative reporter for the local newspaper. And they live in a city called New Hope, USA. <laughs> uh, strangely and, and completely completely, you know, uh, uh, accidentally and uh, as an aside, it's, it's a very much a Pittsburgh-sized city, you know. <laughs> totally uh, accidentally. Completely by, completely by coincidence. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a riverfront city, much the size of Pittsburgh. And, uh, and one of the industries uh, and the name of the city uh, comes from uh, the Hope family, uh, they helped found New Hope back in the 1700s, and they currently are the family that owns uh, a, a, an industry-spanning uh, corporation called Hope Worldwide. The current uh, CEO of Hope Worldwide is a relatively young man named Apollo Hope. <laughs> and if you're wondering who would name their son Apollo... His father's name was Jupiter, Jupiter Hope. <laughs> and he and Professor Click were of the same age and came up together. Uh, and they were the kind of young guys that were developing this t technology in a garage, you know, with dumpster diver equipment. Uh, and they, they were dealing in the early stages of this, you know, uh, the forefront of this technology. Uh, Jupiter is no longer in the picture. And, and uh, Apollo is now running the company with the occasional kibitzing uh, by the desire of, Apollo, of Jupiter. Uh, you know, he kind of put, uh, asked Dex to take a position of kind of advisor to his son so he doesn't go too far off the rails and things like that. So we've got the police angle, we've got the investigative journalist angle, we've got the, the multinational corporation angle, we've got the high-tech angle, <laughs> we've got the, you know, uh, kids believing in heroes angle. Uh, there's plenty, plenty of, of story source there that uh, we were, were just having immense fun with. Uh, and the, the format is actually, we've been telling these stories in 11-page uh, bursts. The, the origin story is 11 pages. The second story is 11 pages. And, uh, you know, we, we've been working with different formats as much as, you know, to get the same kind of character development, but in, in, in shorter bursts of story that, uh, you know, Tom DeFalco just loves. I mean, he, he, Tom can write, uh, being a craft writer, he can write everything from a five-page story to an 11-page story to a 64-page graphic novel, whatever you need. <laughs> you just, you know, he'll adjust the chair, you know. So we were having great fun in telling, you know, uh, you know, briefer stories with a beginning, a middle, and an end, but continuing the character arcs and the character development through through all the different stories. So uh, it, it's... It, 
it's going to be a lot of fun. The one thing I, I, you know, if you've enjoyed the DeFalco and Friends work up to this point, if you've enjoyed our Spider-Man run and Thor and Thunderstrike and Spider-Girl, then I, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't also enjoy this because it's very much in the vein of the work that we've been lucky enough to do because we've always been lucky enough to do work that we enjoy. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we've always been able to, to find assignments that, uh, are the kind of work that we, we can be proud of and the kind of work that we enjoy doing. So it's, it's no real mystery that, you know, what we're doing now, given the chance to do anything, that what we're doing is still very much in that same vein. Hmm. So, so hit me with some questions. All right. Uh, well, this, this question is more like, so when, you're, when you guys are kind of coming up with the idea, like how do you guys get linked up with Apex Comics? When does that partnership kind of formulate? Or like how long had this kind of concept of trying to do kind of your own, kind of create your own thing that you guys would kind of do together? How, did, how and when did Apex become part of this story? Well, Apex became part of it just within the last year or so. Okay. Uh, we actually developed this uh, as a, uh, a potential title for Image Comics at the same time Tom was doing a book called Randy O'Donnell is the Man. <laughs> um, he developed that with Ron Lim, and that ran for like two or three issues. Uh, at the time, the strip was just called Mr. Wright. It was previewed in an issue of Randy O'Donnell. Okay. And he was also in the planning stages of another title with Pat Olive. What ended up happening is the situation with, with, with Image became kind of fluid. And with Mr. Wright in particular, we uh, Tom had hired some uh, uh, representatives for the, out on the West Coast. And they were showing it around to different uh, production houses. And Warner Brothers actually liked it enough. They were curious enough about it that they asked for a, uh, a series Bible to be produced. And uh, initially it was being produced by somebody who was not Tom DeFalco or myself, mm. and that became a problem, you know. Uh, and uh, at one point we were even told by, the, by these representatives that the Rocks people were looking at it. Oh, really? And then it became a situation of perhaps we should hold off on this if there's actually a chance that some production house or television production house or something would be interested in this. You know, if it's a brand new concept, then you don't really want it to be adapted. Uh, you know, you, you want it to be consistent hmm. between, you know, TV and, and the comic. And is, so, we, you know, we, we started to hold off on pursuing the comic uh, in any real way in, because if, it, if there were a deal to come through for more of a mass media outlet like a movie or, or television, you don't want the comic to be any different than the comic. So we would lean in the direction that the development of, of, a, of a series or a film would go, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, it then became a situation where Tom and I had other work and we went and did it, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> we, we took other work with Marvel and DC and, and uh, Mr. Wright kind of was relegated to the shelf uh, because none of those deals ever, ever formulated. So where that put us was with this first issue that we were really happy with and characters that we loved and a premise that we knew had some legs, uh, but, uh, but it was just kind of gathering dust on the shelf. And we were approached by Apex Comics, which Apex Comics 
is run, uh, the, the editor-in-chief and publisher of Apex Comics is a gentleman named Mariano Nicieza, who has worked for Marvel mm. uh, and worked for Stan Lee. And uh, Tom and I were very familiar with him. And he has linked up with this uh, uh, liquid avatar outfit, which is dealing in NFTs and uh, digital entertainment and digital avatars for uh, information storage and and all of this high-tech stuff. And he approached us and asked us if we had any projects we might be interested in developing uh, with Apex Comics. And, you know, not, <laughs> not mysteriously, Tom went, uh, actually, we have one that's sitting all ready to go if you're interested, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, and, you know, we had to tweak it a little bit, update it a little. We actually had to to retitle it because uh, being a little obsessive, I did myself a little private Google search and found that there was a, an independent comic being produced, a black and white comic being uh, on one of those websites where they print to order. Oh, yeah. There, there is a uh, an independent comic called Mr. Right that is apparently a satire of superhero comics. Um, and there have been several produced. So as near as we could tell, they hadn't trademarked it, but if we trademarked it, the thing about trademarks is you can't have one without defending it. Mm. And we weren't about to go ahead and trademark it and then have to send these people a cease and desist letter because obviously they've been producing this thing and they've been putting heart and soul into it. So you don't want to be the bad guy if you're going to do a book called Mr. Right. So... uh, (laughs) We added the periods, which are part of the story anyway. We're already in the lead story, and uh, and called it the right project. Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends is the right project, mm-hmm. and uh, in a way, I like it better. It works better for me because, as I said before, you know, Mister Wright being a uh, an artificial avatar, you know, you're not going to be telling stories about his background and why he does things. But we are going to be talking about Professor Click and Carlin and their family and, you know, how the Avatar came to be, who the Avatar is designed after, and Jeff Lopez and his mom and dad and all this. I mean, when we're talking about the right project, we're talking about the technology and we're talking about the people who are involved and affected by the technology. So in a way, that title... Uh, encompasses the, the characters much better than just calling it simply Mr. Right. Mm. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's funny how sometimes these things you're forced to do end up being things that uh, work even a little better, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, and, and one of my favorite things, uh, and again, it has to do with the, the timing of it, because I was unaware of the novel Ready Player One, mm. and it was before the movie came out <laughs> that we developed Mr. Wright. And Mr. Wright refers to Jeff Lopez as Player One, uh, which which struck me as a very Jack Kirby kind of cool thing, you know, Player One in quotes, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, it's a neat, fun world that, that we've created that, that, that I, I hope we get a chance to play in it more. Uh, we'll see. You know, I mean, it, we're still waiting. Uh, the... The Indiegogo campaign goes for another three or four days, and we'll see where it puts us. And we're doing a convention appearance at the very beginning of December in California mm-hmm. uh, with a big push 
from uh, Liquid Avatar and Apex Comics, and we'll see where that puts us. You know, uh, Tom and I are very unfamiliar with the world of independent comics. You're not dealing with major distributors and things like that, so we're just going to have to wait and see where uh, where it all shakes out and whether or not it offers a a path forward. Certainly, we have a lot of stories that we could have a lot of fun telling, and we'll see if we're able to do that. Now, I'm sure that this may not be quite your milieu, and this might be more uh, for uh, for the legendary Tom DeFalco, but in terms of, you know, again, being on Indiegogo and having a campaign running, like, I would imagine that's relatively foreign to you. How has that experience been from your perspective? It, it's been, uh, it looks like a lot of hard work. Quite frankly, uh, Mariano Nicieza from Apex did most of the heavy lifting in setting up the campaign and determining the, uh, working with Tom, determining the uh, the levels and the uh, stretch goals and you know and, and, and the stretch goal bonuses and things like that I kind of stayed out of it I I, I want to draw that's <laughs> I want to draw I, I'm kind of useless when it comes to that kind of stuff I've never really been comfortable on the business side of anything so I uh, I let those guys handle that and occasionally was required to give a nod on something you know uh, and I was more concerned with, uh, we had to have the book uh, recolored from uh, uh, Bob Sharon's original color guides, and we were able to get, we were lucky enough to get Glenn Whitmore, uh, who I've been working with on the sitcomics with Blue Baron and, uh, oh, yeah. and uh, Heroes Union, uh, to to work with us on these, and he was more than uh, more than happy which it was a thank uh, thankless job in that initially what we were asking him to do is recreate bob sharon's color guides you know and he was more than happy to do it and he did a fantastic job <coughs> and towards the end with some covers and a couple other things he actually went his own way with things and uh, i mean he's very talented i'm very happy with the work he's doing and and he's a consummate pro uh, in the same vein, we were able to contact Jack Morelli, who originally lettered the uh, the story on the boards, uh, on the traditional way. Mm-hmm. Um, and since we did have to tweak a few things and make a few updates, uh, he we called him in to do that and, and to develop the new title and everything with me. Um, but he also decided he was just going to re-letter the whole thing in the computer. So, <laughs> uh, that was, you know, his own call, and we just went, okay, Jack. And he did a fantastic job on the, you know, the entire package. And uh, uh, we were just very lucky to, to be able to work with these guys because, in my opinion, they're the best in the business. I mean, uh, when we were originally putting the package together, uh, Tom asked me who I wanted to work with, and... You know, I'm always happy working with Tom and creating with Tom. And we have Sal Basema on inks, and we had Bob Sharon on colors, and we had Jack Morelli, who is my favorite letterer currently working in the industry. And uh, we were able to get all of them at the time. And, uh, you know, Bob Sharon is no longer doing the, the computer coloring and everything, but, uh, you know, so we were able to get Glenn to, to fill that gap, and uh, to, he'll continue on with us if we are lucky enough and privileged enough to continue on. Uh, the only real problem, uh, and it's not a problem because nobody deserves it more, is that Mr. Salpasema is 
is very much uh, of a retirement age where he's, you know, he's backing off. He's doing fewer and fewer commissions and mm-hmm. really isn't uh, interested in, in wrangling deadlines anymore and everything. So if we do continue, and of course it's also something that's going to affect the work going forward at Sitcomics, you know, Sal's going to be less and less a part of it, unfortunately. But but if anybody has earned a a laureled retirement that is Mr. Salbasema, I think you'll agree. I can't imagine most people being able to still deliver at 85 years old. Uh, you know that he's that incredible role. man. He really is. Yeah, yeah. And the work he's doing. We just did a variant Spider-Man cover together, and mm-hmm. it was beautiful work. I mean, the guy's incredible. He really is. So let me ask a question uh, about Sal. So obviously, you guys have collaborated for a long time. So can you recall the first time you ever met Sal? The first time I met Sal, that's a good one. Because we spoke on the phone so much. We got very friendly on the phone. Okay. So I'm thinking the first time we met in person was probably when when he and and his wife Joan came to a Pittsburgh show. Okay. And we we had DeFalco and myself and Sal and his wife and Pat Olive all together in one place for for like a uh, Spider Girl. We turned it into a, you know, Spider-Girl Summit anniversary slash thing, you know, and uh, and I believe that's the first time that we met in, you know, in reality, but uh, we had uh, been working together on Spider-Girl, and we, we had done some work together earlier, but not, um, I think the first few times I spoke to him on the phone was uh, early in MC2, he was. We we got him inking some of my A next covers. Okay. He kind of became the regular anchor on the on the A next covers. We actually worked together as early as the uh, way back in the new universe. Oh wow! He inked the first issue of uh, Kicker's Ink. Okay. Um, and it was gorgeous, but I never had any contact with him at that point. And he only did the first issue. I, I have no idea how that all came about. That was all handled on the editorial end, and uh, I had nothing to do with it other than being a huge fan of Sal Basella. But, um, but he was inking, you know, he, he came in and was helping uh, Tom on some of the other MC2 titles. Uh, he inked Pat Olive on a couple of Spider-Girl annu- uh, on a Spider-Girl annual and I think one or two issues. And so he was kind of, he was aware of the MC2 titles, and he was working with Tom on, on some of the MC2 titles. So as Al Williamson... Uh, uh, kind of phased out in into retirement. We were able to bring Sal in because uh, my first couple of Spider Girls were inked by Al Williamson. Mm-hmm. But then, as he decided to to take his retirement, uh, we were able to plug Sal in. Uh, luckily, he enjoys working on my pencils, which is incredibly flattering. And I've been so spoiled because I learned I've learned so much from Sal over the years that our styles are incredibly compatible and uh, it, it's been very hand in glove. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's as if I were aching myself, but I knew what I was doing, which <laughs> I would not, you know. Uh, it, it's, I, I, it's going to be a really hard transition for me to not have Sal to lean on mm-hmm. anymore. I, I, I have to say that. I, it's, it has really spoiled me over the years because it hasn't just been Spider-Girl it's been almost every other ancillary 
assignment we've taken in the meantime, Sal's been there to to back me up. Mm-hmm. You know. Now and, it's it's, uh, it's so interesting to me about comic books as because of how you guys kind of work so siloed is that you could have such a you know uh, a regular ongoing kind of working relationship with someone without meeting them for a long time or as you said like you know they'll talk on the phone but you're not necessarily kind of meeting each other right. because you're all kind of so uh separate and independent and in kind of how everyone operates it's so interesting um to go back to as you said you're you know kind of a huge lifelong uh busama fan when was the first time that you remember kind of interacting or seeing sal's work and kind of and taking note of it and being like this is this guy's special oh in the late 60s uh you know from the time i discovered marvel through Spider-Man, I can remember, you know, we had a second-hand issue that we traded with another kid that lived a couple of blocks from us that was uh, one of his earlier Avengers jobs uh, that introduced the Grandmaster. It was called Let the Games Begin. It was Roy Thomas and Sal and Sam Granger, uh, and it was, there was just an energy and a dynamics you know, to his work as well as his brother John's that just grabbed you by the throat and dragged you in. You know, I mean, uh, a lot of my early love of Marvel, you know, even before, because I, I tend to look at Jack Kirby sometimes as, a, as an acquired taste. You know, I think you, you need a certain amount of education to appreciate Kirby in, in all of his breadth and width. But... You know, there's no denying the energy of it. And mm-hmm. and Sal and John Ramita and John Buscema, you know, had all of that energy from Kirby, but, you know, with, with more uh, attractive faces and figures and, and more anatomically correct figures and stuff. So it was almost that much more accessible, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those were the early names that just made me a Marvel guy, you know, and... Uh, the fact, believe me, the fact that I got to work and become friends with Sal Buscema, the fact that I, I got to work for an extended period with Mr. Joe Sinnott, all of that is just still mind-blowing to me. You know, I, I young Ron friends never would have believed it. He dreamed about it, but he never would have believed it. So, for sure. Uh, I mean, and Sal's obviously like yeah. one of, I mean, there's not... A ton. I mean, there's still some people. There are people left who worked at Marvel in the '60s, but it's obviously a, a shortening list every year. So, I mean, uh, it's and it's still amazing that he's still, you know, b- being able to do the work and still, you know, providing such amazing inks. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, the last few pieces I've seen of him, even the the uh, the, the commissions he's producing are, are beautiful. I mean, he, uh, but but you know, if you're not physically prohibited. Uh, you know, like Ramona Freighton is still doing beautiful work in her 90s. Mm. You know, I mean, her, her commissions are gorgeous. And she's actually, the, she's been commissioned to, to do like a couple of Wonder Woman covers and things like that. And that's beautiful to see. That's just a wonderful example of, of work ethic. And, and Sal's whole thing was, you know, his he, he believes that idle hands are the devil's workshop. So as long as he's able to produce work, he wants to. You know, I, I don't think he has to. He wants to keep producing if he can. Mm-hmm. I mean, in the last couple of years, he's he's found himself f- feeling the drive a little less, you know, getting to the board a little less. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I've said a few times about Sal, if anybody, if, if we, if it's possible that a human has a finite number of pages in them, 
you know, that the, 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 the clicker hits a certain number and we're done. <laughs> then Sal Buscema is definitely one of the people that has earned the right to do that. Because <laughs> you know, sure. when, you, when you look at the volume of work he's produced, pencils, inks, pencils and inks, I mean, it's just phenomenal. It's phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've, uh, I've been very gratified to see that, you know, because Sal has gone through phases where his work has not been respected as much as I've always felt it deserved to be. Uh, you know, he was considered one of the, one of the line guys, one of the, you know, he's in the, he's in the trenches producing the material and, you know, he, the, the label hack was applied to Sal at different times. And early in my career, when the word hack was applied to me, I took it as a, as a badge of honor because, you know, I will share anything with Sal Buscema career-wise, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Because, uh, you know, but, but I, I, that's why I'm thrilled that as nostalgia has, uh, you know, has set in and everything, you know, people realize that what a presence Sal's work was in their love of comics mm -hmm. because there, there was there's uh, I don't think there's any Marvel title that he didn't touch on at some point either in a fill-in or a run or handling the characters in the Avengers or or something you know I mean Hulk was his favorite but I mean Rom was so beautiful but his run on Captain America is, is one of the ones that I really remember I mean that's that was just something that had me enthralled each and every month. Uh, so, yeah, working with him, and you, you mentioned the people that are still around from the 60s. Uh, I was also lucky enough to work with, with uh, Mr. Tom Palmer for a run on Star Wars, and, oh, yeah. and we've done some other work together. We have work that's going to be coming out in the this month, and, and, and you know, I don't know exactly what the schedule is on it, but we did some pieces for variant covers for some Star Wars series. They're going to be doing something about a war of the bounty hunters or something. So we did standing figures of some of the more popular bounty hunters that are, I think they're going to, my understanding was they're going to put them together as covers that look a little bit like entries from the handbook of the Marvel Universe type Okay. Thing. So, uh, you know, I just recently, not all that long ago, worked with, with Tom Palmer on that. So, I mean, I have been blessed. I have, I, I got in comics at a great time when we still had newsstand sales, and I was able to enjoy that kind of uh, of a kick. Uh, we transitioned into the comic shops, and but you know, I was I worked with Joe Sinnott as early as uh, my one what if job. Hmm. Uh, what if the Invisible Girl died in childbirth? Um, uh, Joe ate that and so from very early on I was you know blessed with uh, working with some of the greats some of the people that I really admired I, I got to work with Mr. Mike Esposito on some Marvel team up work mm -hmm. and uh, you know so a lot of the guys I grew up with were, were, you know, were still active when I first came in I never got to work with uh, Mr. Frank Giacoya I uh would have loved to have done a few jobs with him, but uh, but he passed far too early, and uh, so I was sorry about that. But um, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a hell of a ride. It really has, and and not a day goes by that I don't thank the Lord for it because uh, I, I I couldn't have really asked for a, 
uh, a better ride in this industry than the one I had. Mm-hmm. I want to. I just. I'll change the subject just for a minute. But uh, obviously, I always love seeing you know you doing variant covers, etc. So you did a couple recently for Spider Man. I mean, obviously, Spider Man is a very touch point, a touchstone character for you. Uh, means a lot to you. That was obviously, as you said before, kind of your childhood dream to kind of draw Spider Man, which you achieved very early. Um, is it always a thrill to kind of be able to be asked back to to do variant covers for special issues of Spider Man? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I, I will always, I, you know, I'm a Marvel guy to the bone. I, I appreciate and was frankly honored uh, to be given the opportunity to work on Superman. Come on, it's Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you always start out, I mean, I know my brother and I started out loving Superman and Batman before we were first exposed to Spider-Man and the Marvel characters, you know. So I, I always kind of saw that that's, that's kind of that was the nature of things you know that was the evolution of comics and i never lost my love for for batman or superman but i i'm a marvel guy to the bone uh and the company has treated me very well and i love the characters and do i still voraciously read the titles no i I don't i'm sorry but but when i was playing in that arena when you know, I mean, even even when I my first regular assignment of Kesar uh, the Savage, I I loved the Kesar character. I already, I mean, it's John Buscema, man. I you know I was <laughs> voraciously consuming anything penciled by John Buscema, so uh, I had that love of of Kesar. So there there was very little I was doing. I mean, even even my run on Star Wars wasn't Marvel-oriented, but I was a Star Wars fan. So I got to play in all these different sandboxes, in most cases, of characters that I had wanted to work on for forever. You know, I got to do Marvel Team-Up with Spider-Man and some other characters. You know, I I tell the story that when I finally got offered the chance to do a run of Spider-Man, he was in the black suit. So, you know, (laughs) wah, wah, wah. But, you know, that turned into something that, uh, of course, nobody expected, and so the things that I'm, you know, uh, identified with are, you know, the black costume Spider-Man, the Hobgoblin, mm-hmm. which we did not create, but uh, we did a, you know, we were associated with it because he was a very active part of our run. And uh, Thor and Thunderstrike and, uh, you know, it's just been a joy. It really has. So I have a, a question about, uh, just in general, about when you do get contracted to do these variant covers, specifically with the two most recent Spider-Man ones, because obviously they're extremely similar to each other. So I'm curious what the direction was there, and if that was kind of a, an idea that came from editorial when they had you kind of do these variants where you have essentially the same kind of posing for Spider-Man, or if that was kind of... It was. Own... It, was it was editor Nick Lowe's idea to, okay. to do, the, uh, to, to do the, uh, the, the repeat of the figure, to have... Yeah, to have uh, Ben Riley, you know, uh, literally in in Pete's position, you know, in the second cover. Uh, so as I designed them both at the same time, I had to design them both w- with an eye towards that. Uh, and uh, you know, that can be very limiting at times, but uh, I thought it worked out. I mean, I if if you if you put a gun to my head, I would have to say that it, I think it worked better. For the Pete cover with uh, uh, with Kindred, a little better than it worked for the uh, for the uh, UFOs cover, 
uh, somebody on my Facebook page went, hey, Ben, the UFOs are behind you, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so I, th- I think what kind of lost got lost in translation a little bit is that Ben is dodging the flying debris that mm. Vector is causing, you know. So he's he's very aware of where the UFOs are. He's, <laughs> he's, he's busy dodging the flying debris, but I didn't bother to... Uh, to answer that on my uh, on my thread because I don't want to appear defensive. I'll come on your show and appear defensive. <laughs> so I just but, uh, between but no, overall I thought they worked pretty well and of course the first one was Ink by Sal and Brett Breeding was available to to ink the second one and uh, you know, it was gorgeous. I mean I, I think they came out real well. I haven't I actually haven't seen a printed copy of the Ben Riley one yet. Okay. Usually they send you at least one comp copy and I got my comp copy of the first one I haven't gotten my comp copy of the second one yet but uh, as an aside uh, Brett Breeding's re-teamed with Dan Jurgens, and they're doing they did a raft of variant covers for a bunch of titles that are coming out in the next several months yeah they've started previewing those they're very exciting some of them are gorgeous yeah some of them are really really gorgeous Um, who did the who did the colors on the on the two variant covers that you did Uh, two different gentlemen um I'd have to to check my Facebook page uh, to to find the names, but it was, it was one they were each done by a different guy. But uh, they weren't people whose work I was familiar with. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, like I said, I, I was incredibly happy, soup to nuts with the uh, the Kindred one, and uh, and I was and I was very happy with the other one as well. But. Uh, yeah, it's it's always you know the last time I did covers uh, for. Well, Nick Lowe has, has kind of kept us in, in his Rolodex because, uh, you know, we did the 10-pager for uh, uh, Spider-Man Self-Improvement, mm-hmm. uh, the one-shot with the black costume, and uh, but we did a little 10-pager in the back uh, of Spider-Man. It was a lot of fun, and again, Sal was a part of that and everything. Um, and before that, I think it, Brett and I did the cover for, what was it, 800? I think so. I mean, the... They're all coming so hot and heavy these days with the <laughs> the weeklies and the bi-weeklies and all that kind of stuff. But it was, yeah, I think it was issue issue eight hundred. Was that the one with the Red Goblin that wrapped up the Red Goblin? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we did. Uh, yeah, and and that was another one where Nick Lowe actually suggested the approach and suggested the content and everything. So he's a he's a terrific young editor. I I enjoy working with him. When, when you do get these you know these uh, calls to do variant covers, do you like getting more direction like that, or do you like kind of having being able to kind of do your own thing? Like, what do you kind of prefer from an artistic it perspective? It works either way. Yeah, you know, it works either way. Uh, yeah, I mean, quite frankly, if I'm not completely up to date and uh you know write a write a pace with what the content is then it, it then it helps to to get that uh you know that design help from the editor you know because in giving you a concept or giving you an idea he's also giving you a better idea of what the what the content of the story is and all that kind of stuff because you know i'm not big on i, I came from an era where we really weren't doing pinup covers we were always doing content covers for sure so uh, you know i i kind of prefer if he's gonna give me a you know a sense of who the bad guy is and 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 what kind of background would be appropriate and things like that you know so uh 
Yeah, it, it, it definitely helps if you're not a monthly reader of the title anymore, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I do. I one. I one thing I really appreciated about the difference between those two variants, the two most recent ones, as you said, like it, it kind of comes from a similar kind of initial standpoint in terms of you know the the the, the layout in terms of how Ben or Peter is is kind of jumping out initially is again how those inks and the colors really end end up you know making them set of, apart from each other. Like you know there there's obviously a lot of similarities here on purpose, but they still really stand apart nicely, which. I, again, is a testament to kind of the backup band, so to speak, that you have here in terms of the inks and the colors. Yeah. Oh, very true. That's that's very true. I I really I do like the. Uh, I thought they came up with a pretty nice design for for Ben's new costume. Uh, I'm not quite sure the gentleman's name. It's one of the regular guys on Spider Man now designed it, uh, and I was sent the design sketches and stuff. <laughs> the, the, the funniest thing about it. To me, it was this one little incident that was specific to me. Is when I posted the, the I posted it on my Facebook page, and one of one of the guys that, that commented on the Facebook page, he was trying to catch me in something because the new Ben Riley suit does have the spider off to one side. It's not centered in his chest anymore. Mm-hmm. It's it's off to one side, and I could tell the way that the the the, uh, the guy phrased the question that he was. He, he thought that there was a, a, a possibility he was catching me in something because <laughs> I drew I drew it the way I drew it and it was off to one side. But you could uh, he must have thought that the drawing it might have just been a bad drawing, and because he said so, they designed Ben's suit with the spider off center on his chest, <laughs> and I went, "Yep, they did." Yep, <laughs> and, and he came back with. Well, that's a very unusual design, <laughs> kind of thing, and it's like you little cuss, you were trying to stick it to me, weren't you? Oh, that's funny. But uh, I, I think it, it. I mean, I've seen the stuff online of some of the other artists handling it and everything, and it's it's a variation on the suit he had. I mean, I think they could have, they probably could have gotten a lot of mileage just going back to the original suit that we used for Spider Girl, you know. Oh, sure. uh, I think a lot of a lot of the Ben Riley fans would have been thrilled to see that, or even the Scarlet Spider outfit, you know. But uh, I give them some credit for coming up with something a little fresher, and uh, uh, I think it, you know, I think it looks cool. I think it looks neat. Uh, I, it's interesting to me that we are. It, it is such a part of the culture now. It's such a part of the Spider-Man mythos now that he has these variant costumes. Mm. When I was right there on ground zero when we first put him in that black suit and wasn't sure it wasn't going to blow up in our face <laughs> like, a, <laughs> like a bad chemical reaction, you know. Um, but the, the landscape has really changed when you think about what a, what a seismic shift it was to, to put him in that black suit originally. Oh, for sure. I mean, now he has variant costumes for all kinds of different things, you know. I mean, he's... He's got a costume to go to the kitchen and a costume to go to, uh, <laughs> go to bed and a, a costume to go to the workroom and all that kind of stuff. One to work out in and mm-hmm. one to prowl the night and 
all this kind of stuff. So, well, even the concept uh, of having someone else in the costume, like way back when, like that was a, a bigger deal, and now everyone kind of takes it oh, for granted that that's okay. You know, you can have multiple yeah. different people wearing the costume. It's it's interesting to see because obviously it's a very you know it's it's changed. Uh, the, you know, the the taste of change and what we can expect and understand. And as you said, you were there when there was a lot of kerfuffle over that black costume that like, you can't possibly change Spider Man's costume, and now it's much more accepted. Sure. I, it really is. And, and it's just, I, more than anything, it was a point of just how old I am, Adam. But, uh, <laughs> but thank you for reinforcing that. But no, I, uh, I, I, you know, the interesting thing to me and the reason that I'm very aware of it is because I did a Facebook post because towards the end of uh, DeFalco and, and my run on um, Spider-Man, our editor at the time had asked for yet another design. It was only like a year and a half after the black suit. <laughs> so I don't even think Venom was developed yet. But because we had gotten the sales bump from the black suit and all this, <laughs> the editor approached me and said, you know, come up with another design. And I'm like, you're kidding. And he would know. <laughs> he, his, he was starting to feel like, well, you know, every year or so, we can just give Spider-Man a new suit and we'll get a sales bump and we'll get you know, this kind of thing. And I'm like, really? So, I, quite frankly, I did several comedy designs, you know, with like his, he was shooting webs out of his butt. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I brought hairy arms and legs into the design, you know, and things like And I, I didn't take it really seriously. I mean, I did... I think I did like five or six that were solid variations on something that we that could have worked, you know. Uh, in fact, one of them looked a little like what Alex Ross supposedly designed for the film. Oh yeah, remember it just had the one V coming down with the webbing on it. The mm -hmm. rest was a black body. I had one very similar to that actually, um, and then a couple other ones. What, what he ended up signing off on was basically the black costume, but with red highlight instead of blue mm. and underarm webbing <laughs> was what he ended up signing off on. Now, it never happened because there was a seismic shift in personnel. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He fired us and then he got fired and it all went out the window anyway. But what was interesting is I did this post kind of with the attitude like, look at this bullet we dodged, right? Yeah. But the response from the current fan base was completely the opposite. <laughs> it was, you know, how forward-thinking that editor was. Really? And uh, that's a really neat design, and I kind of like the other one, too. And, you know, because the, the readers now are coming for, even my fans are kind of coming from a completely different mindset of it's okay for Spider-Man to have a closet that look like that looks like the wasps, you know. I mean, where you know, which which what am I going to do tonight? What I what special do I need the neon green suit or do I need the armored one or do I need you know? I mean, the guy's got like two or three different armored versions for crying out loud. Oh yeah, He's... I mean it's it's nuts, but it is what it is, you know. So I, it was just something that I wasn't aware of as I as I presented the post. I wasn't uh, I, I wasn't expecting that that the, uh, the the people responding to the post would be coming from a completely different direction than I than I than I was presenting. But uh, it was it was a real education hmm. into how things have changed in the last uh, 
40 years, you know. I was going to say, you don't have to say the amount of years it's been. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been that, though. <laughs> I, I do have to... I'm when I'm 61 now, and I was doing Spider-Man, I think, when I was 25, 26. Wow. So, you know. Um, yeah. One thing I, I do like to, to try and make sure I mention to you each time we talk is I always appreciate and enjoy uh, the work you do on your Facebook page too. You know, you show a lot of process work, um, you know, a lot of design work, a lot of commissions you've worked on, etc. It's always a lot of fun to kind of see what you put up next. Um, so well, I thank you. So I always appreciate and enjoy kind of seeing that. And again, as you said, kind of seeing the dialogue when fans are talking about it and saying like, oh, you know, I really like what you do this or when they do that or whatever. Like, I, I like that, you know, it allows you to engage with people who are, you know, built-in fans of yours already or sometimes they come to it from, you know, a post from Defalco or whatever the case might be and they end up on your page and they get to see, again, all this amazing work that you put up there. So I always appreciate that you are engaging with people and you're putting up new stuff, all, you know, very frequently and, and at a good clip. So I, you always have something new and exciting on your page. So I always appreciate that. Well, I, uh, thank you, Adam. I, I'm glad that you enjoy it. And it, it is the plaintive cry of the old man on the park bench going, <laughs> I'm still alive! <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and that's exactly why I joined Facebook, was just to let people know I was still out here and and still active and doing commissions, but also, you know, working for sitcomics and producing Blue Baron and, and now The Right Project. I mean, I'm not dead yet. And... Uh, <laughs> What's really fascinating to me, as you know, I think you and I even spoke about this once before, is the real education for me with Facebook is the things that connect the most are the things that you share with the viewer. Mm. You know, it's it's that personal nostalgia that is what people are reacting to the most. If I if I post something from Thor or Spider Man or you know Spider Girl to a slightly lesser extent. the things that they remember reading when they were younger, you know, uh, that, that are part of their uh, pleasant childhood memories. And believe me, it is nothing less than an honor to be a part of people's, you know, wonderful childhood nostalgia. I mean, that is a blessing. Uh, so I, I appreciate it. But I didn't I didn't really expect it. I, I guess there was a part of me that thought that, you know, it, like if like if John Ramita Sr. were doing the Facebook page or if John Basema mm. or Sal Basema were doing a Facebook page and they wanted to run, you know, pieces from their uh, their art school portfolios, that would fascinate me, yeah. you know. Uh, not so much the, the average fan, you know, because <laughs> I've tried that a few times and tumbleweeds blow by, you know, uh, the, the real, the, the real, and even with Mr. Wright, you know, I mean, it's, we, it's been very gratifying to see the response to the Indiegogo, but it is not pulling in the kind of, the, the, the kind of traffic and the kind of likes that you get if you are doing Spider-Man or the Black Costume or the Hobgoblin or Thor or, mm. you know, something that is a part of their shared past. And that's what the viewer is, you know, the, the majority of the viewers are looking for. And I, and I get that, and I like it, and, you know, again, I, I appreciate being a part of that. So, uh, but, it, but it's amazing to me sometimes the things that will, that will connect. Uh, and, but I love hearing those stories. You know, I, I, 
the, I love the type of story. Like I remember the day I bought that at the Seven Eleven, and mm-hmm. and continued on to my grandma's and drank a, a, a lemonade under her <laughs> birch tree in the backyard, and you know that kind of thing. It's just uh, those are the kind of things that uh, you can't help but be moved by. You know, being a part of that. You know that that my name and my work can be a part of that for people is is wonderful. And I think I've told you this before, but I mean, you are almost that exact story is very similar to some of the things I remember from my first books that I ever saw that you ever that I had ever seen you illustrate. So, like, I remember, uh, you know, when I was like nine or ten years old, I was again visiting my grandmother and going to like the you know the convenience store, and there was. Uh, there's Marvel Tales issues reprinting some of your your amazing Spider-Man work uh, versus the Sinister Syndicate. I remember how excited I was to read those issues. Um, And then at the same time, a couple years later, I remember, you know, again, still visiting my grandmother. Apparently, that's when I see Ron Friends the most. Uh, But I remember (laughs) being in her small town, and she was like, oh, this one store has some comics. So I went over, and on the spinner rack, they had A-Next number seven. And I don't think I'd really read a lot of A-Next at that time. And obviously, I've become a huge fan of that. We've talked, I think, for like six or seven hours about A-Next, so I won't belabor the point here. But but that was... I, I, I love the fact that you're... You're an Anex fan. I, I, I appreciate that. I really but that was that. a big moment for me. I remember seeing that book and being like, "Oh, this looks great!" and just falling in love with it and finding the rest of the issues. And again, having those, you know, twelve issues have always been such a big deal to me. But again, it all kind of started with again a very casual kind of you know spending time with my grandmother and having to go to a complex right. or a place that had comics with her on the on a newsstand at a, just this little magazine store in this small town, and then you know fell in love with this book that would stay with me forever. So I definitely get that kind of idea and you represent childhood then we you and i have a shared history because of that connection you know and and the idea of having that with a mass audience is incredibly humbling and incredibly touching and i'm just the luckiest guy in the world you know because i grew up a fan of this i grew up uh for you know I I aged and and spent my formative years on that same side that you were on, you know, being Mm. moved by these titles and and excited by these titles and characters and everything. And and then to to grow into it, actually have the opportunity to to work in the field. And and very frankly, I'm just, you know, I mentioned before, I, I got in while we still had newsstand sales. And I'm glad, just because... It was a it was a different vibe at the time, um, because it was a there was a different standard in surviving, mm-hmm. and because it was it was like this incredibly broad audience that you know you were judged by uh, by slightly different standards back then than when we went completely into uh, the comic shops, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and. Uh, you know, there was even an adjustment in the in the type of material that is now produced because of those kinds of things. You know, um, and the price point and all this other kind of stuff that mm-hmm. were no longer part of the the mass market. And now I'm touching on business sides of it that I don't want any part of. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it it really is something that you know I I got to be on both sides of the fence when it was still pretty much the same. 
is I guess what I'm trying to say. When the industry was still, you know, the fans were still relating to it the same way I related to it and everything. Mm -hmm. and, and my first conventions as a Marvel guy were just incredibly joyful. And, uh, you know, I, I got to work with actors in in Spider-Man costumes. A gentleman named Scott Levo was one of the few guys that wore a black costume that had the black costume made to his measurements and stuff and, <laughs> and, and did early promotional things at conventions with him and uh it's it's you know it was a joy i i had a hell of a ride i really did i and it's not over yet but i i mean if it ended tomorrow i'd, I'd have a smile on my face there's no no two ways about it so I have one last question for you before I let you get back to your evening. Um, so uh, people who can go, they can still, as of today, so we're recording this on, I guess, what, Monday the 1st. So the Indiegogo campaign is still running, so you can still go in and, and back uh, the project. So again, this Absolutely. Is the right project. Now, of the perks themselves, so the things that people can purchase different uh, you know, tiers to get different versions of the book, etc., what is your personal favorite? Do you think is the kind of the, the most interesting perk or combination of things that you, you have for sale? You know, I really don't know. There's some stuff I'm really curious to see. There's, there's, there's a pin that I haven't seen the actual prototype of or anything. But uh, you know, there's there is there's, there is a level for uh, uh, blank cover sketches mm -hmm. of not just Mr. Wright characters, but any character. Um, so I'm going to be looking forward to, to handling that uh, in December. Uh, and giving it all the weight that it deserves. Um, but I'll be honest with you, the, one of the things that I, if I were a fan, would fascinate me because of the type of fan I was, is if we reach our next stretch goal, there's a digital booklet or a digital comic, if you want to call it that, that will be part of the package that is a, uh, a broken uh, breakdown of how-to. Uh, it will be a breakdown of the uh, origin story of the Wright Project that will show Tom DeFalco's plot and my pencils and the inks and the guy, just a, a, a how-to by Tom DeFalco of putting this together. And when I was a fan, that's something that I would have just eaten up with a spoon. You know, <laughs> I always appreciated seeing behind the curtain. So... You know, there's still time if you want to jump on board and help us reach this next stretch goal that, you know, if you would enjoy something like that, it's there. But uh, the best way, I, rather than just going to Indiegogo and looking for Tom DeFalco and Ron Frenz's The Right Project, is possibly easier would be to go to my public uh, Facebook page mm -hmm. and both my profile picture and my uh, cover picture are Mr. Wright involved and if you click on them there it will provide a link to the specific indiegogo page okay That's so perfect. you can stop by the facebook page you can scroll a little bit look around but like i said if you click on my profile picture or click on the the cover uh picture it'll it'll have a post that'll it'll have a link to the direct uh, indiegogo page and uh see if it appeals to you i mean like i said i can't imagine if you've enjoyed our work at all that you that you wouldn't enjoy this um i guarantee it'll be fun now if you're one of those weirdos that don't enjoy fun <laughs> i can't speak to that um, but uh and i and I'm, believe me i'm not used to begging for money but 
I, I can guarantee it will be, it will be a fun journey. And, uh, you know, I very much appreciate anybody that's uh, curious enough and, tr- or tr- and or trusts us enough <laughs> to take this journey with us. And uh, it, it is, it's the first time for everybody. Mm-hmm. So uh, it should be fun. When I, when I first saw the, uh, the picture of Mr. Wright, the, the, my first thought, just looking at that jaw, um, is it reminded me a lot of the jaw that you gave Freebooter on the on Anext. There you go. Not a surprise I bring go, it back yeah. to Anext. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, frankly, I mean, if we still have a couple of seconds to talk, sure. um, the, the tie-in with MC2 actually exists because when Tom and I were putting together, when, when we were having those conversations that we started our interview with about, you know, what kind of book do we want to do and everything, I had a character in one of my sketchbooks called Mr. Wright that was going to be a background character in the MC2 universe. Oh. He was going to be kind of, cause since we had taken Daredevil and kind of made him Dark Devil. Mm-hmm and took him in a in a slightly darker direction, I was looking for a swashbuckling, you know, more Ramita Daredevil type of a character uh, to, to round out, you know, some extra characters because we would occasionally get letters about why is every character you introduce uh, a second-generation version of another character, you know, and, and Tom DeFalco at the time, you know, kind of smilingly said, uh, well, that's kind of our thing, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. But I, I was looking forward to introducing, you know, different kinds of characters that would be in the spirit of the original Marvel Universe, but would be more... And he didn't have the same design. That design was not fully formed at all. He was, he did have a red and white costume, and it was in a sketchbook, and and it was always a name that I liked. It's just you know so basic and yet so memorable mm-hmm. that you know for for a superhero character. So I I pulled that. I I said Tom, what do you think of this? And so a lot of our conversations about okay, how do we take that square jawed, smiling, swashbuckling character? and bring him into a modern sensibility, you know, without giving him feet of clay or and betraying him or giving him a tragic origin or anything else. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, where we came up with, uh, how about if we let Jeffrey Lopez bring us into this, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a kid, a kid who has not been broken down by life yet, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, actually still believes in heroes. So, uh, you know, that's really the, the overall theme of the, uh, of the title itself. It's just that, you know, heroes exist. They're all around us. We just don't, we're not used to looking for them anymore. We're not used to identifying them as such. Mm. But, uh, you know, from the smallest act of kindness to last-minute rescues, heroes are all around us. And if you don't look around and you don't see heroes all around you, do us all a favor and be that guy, you know, be that person. Uh, That's what uh, the right project is really all about. That's a wonderful place to end it then, Ron. (laughs) Well, again, Adam, I cannot thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to take this last minute push and to interact with your audience and uh, you've always been a wonderful supporter I've always enjoyed our conversations 
And you've got to love a guy that likes A next. Come right? on, man. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> you've been a true friend, and I really appreciate it. So thank you for your time, sir. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Ron.